Well, I indeed do want to see our Lord this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I am insufficient for these things, and I come off of the prayer that James had us in just a moment ago, saying, we need open eyes and ears, including myself as I preach this passage. Help me this day to find grace and power in my weakness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year in March, when I was obsessed with powerlifting back in the day, I would descend upon Columbus, Ohio to attend uh, an event with what, that is called the Arnold Classic. All right, I would go with some of my buddies, and just so you know, the Arnold Classic, it's named after, you guessed it, Arnold Schwarzenegger himself, the greatest bodybuilder of all time. Don't get me started on that one. He really is. Um, <laughs> People from the bodybuilding, weightlifting, powerlifting, fitness, and uh, physique communities would come from around the world to compete in their respective arenas in the Columbus Convention Center. And as soon as you step into the convention center, you know that you are not in Kansas anymore. The people there, they walk funny, just, you know, briefcases. Uh, They look funny. Uh, They're huge human beings, and some of them are also really thin and really, really tan, unnaturally so, and they just act differently, right? They're talking and walking around, kind of flaunting their stuff and whatnot. Um, They act differently. (laughs) I actually have a few photos to prove my attendance there. So the first one is uh, with a guy named Jay Cutler. That's just some random dude. I don't know who he was uh, flexing with him, but that's Jay Cutler, four times Mr. Olympia, all right? That's the highest achievement you can achieve in bodybuilding. Uh, he had 21-inch arms, okay? And I don't know, it's hard to get, like, gain perspective, but the normal person has, like, 13 or 14-inch arms, so seven whole inches larger around. Um, he was a huge human being, um, and that guy was not. Uh, the next photo I have, <laughs> the next photo I have is of me uh, back in my younger years, uh, clean-shaven, baby-faced, uh, with a guy named Frank McGrath. Now, the thing that made Frank unique and why I was obsessed with him is I've always loved doing forearm workouts. Frank had 20-inch forearms, okay? So I didn't, I didn't want to gross you out, so I didn't put a picture. But when he would flex his forearms and they'd do the tape measure, they would be 20 inches around. I mean, the guy was a mutant. <laughs> I was not. I reflect back on those years fondly because I was a partaker in that community. I, too, walked, talked, and looked funny, uh, therefore making me act differently than you would experience in me now. My local gym was my second home, and many of those gym rats um, that I worked out with were like fathers, mothers, uncles, and aunts to me. And we were united by, and I'm going to sound a little cheesy here, we were united by the iron and what it represented. It represented goals. It represented a, a, a trajectory, somewhere we were heading. We wanted to better ourselves. Now, that self-improvement, obviously, as I just mentioned at the Columbus Convention Center, was often strongly colored by steroids and vanity. Um, but the community was generally rallied around a better self in some way, shape, or form. To its extreme, that made the annual trip to Columbus an adventure into a different world. My question for us today is this. What makes Christian community different? What makes Christian community different. I've been talking about the community that I was involved in in those years when I would go down to Columbus Convention Center. So my question is, what makes Christian community different? We're in a series in 1 Corinthians that we've 
titled Untangled. And today I hope to untangle our pasts to show what makes Christian community different. Now, if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, and you know the section headings of your chapters, you're probably wondering, why is he talking about community when my Bible says lawsuits? Well, we're going to look at that. Um, but the broader kind of overview and scope is of chapters 5, 6, and 7 really deal with community, and specifically how and why it operates differently. You know, why does Christian community operate differently when it comes to sexual immorality? Why does it operate differently when it comes to uh, lawsuits and then marriage? Um, they're all really centered around Christian community and how and why it operates differently. And last week, Pastor Brian in chapter five, five showed us that we hold each other accountable. We judge those within the community for one another's benefit, and this can sometimes even mean excommunication. Chapter six continues the theme of communal actions. So we're going to dive into chapter six today. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians six if you're not already there. We're going to be looking at verse one. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. What makes Christian community different? If my powerlifting community was rallied around self-improvement, what are we rallied around? If people walked into this church and into our homes, would they think that they're not in Kansas anymore? Let's unpack the first reason that I think Christian community is different. It's this. Each church body is a family of remade kingdom people. Why is Christian community different? What makes it different? Each church body, that would include us here as CCF, made up of individual believers, is a family of remade kingdom people. I'm going to unpack that here. Look at verse 1 with me. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the righteous? Uh, or sorry, instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? That you, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? I'm going to kind of unpack as we go. So Paul, remember, is just coming off of talking about judgment, right? He says in verse uh, 12 and th verses 12 and 13 and from chapter 5, for what have I to do without ju with judging outsiders? It is not those inside whom we are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And it's like this triggers this other thought that Paul has had in his, some, of, some of his uh, dialogues and what's going on in the Corinthian churches. Well, I need to address lawsuits, talking about judging and everything like that. And so Paul, he says, dare you when you have a grievance against one another, go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Now notice again, he says, the saints there, and then also, do you not know the saints will judge the world, and that you're going to judge angels. So again, when I said we're remade kingdom people, we have Paul, again, tapping on to that bigger, broader story, right? We are now saints. We are saints in God's kingdom. We are remade people, which he's going to unpack in verses 9 through 11 in a minute, but we are, are, are saints. Now, if, if that weren't enough, we're also going to judge the world, right? In some mysterious and incredible way, Christ, through his ruling authority, will give us ruling authority to judge the world and to even judge angels. So Paul is saying, really, from a greater an argument greater to the lesser, guys, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Look with me. 
at verse 4, continue on. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Again, Paul is saying there's a special community. And really, the no standing in the church, the ESV translates, it's not like, it's not harsh enough. They tried to soften it. It's really those who are despised in the church. And again, the people that you're taking the, the law, the, the, you're taking your brothers to, to law are not in the church. They're despised by the church. Now, again, that sounds harsh, but it's because they're not part of that community. And really, when you talk about the language that's used, they're unrighteous. They are not righteous like we are in the Christian community. Uh, again, if we know the context with the law courts in the Roman system, those judges really were unrighteous. They could be bought. Now, I'm not saying that that can't happen in our judicial systems these days, but the Roman courts were notorious for that. So Paul is ashamed. He's saying, how can you go and bring your brother against brother even again with the unrighteous can it be, look with me in verse five, verse five, he says, I say this to your shame. Now, that's in contrast to back in verse, or chapter four, when Paul says, I do not write things to make, these things to make you ashamed. Paul says, in that context of the ministry of the apostles, he says here, you should be ashamed of this. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there was no one among you wise enough? Again, for the Corinthians who loved the sophos, the wisdom, right? They loved to, to believe that they were wise and they were special and, and everything like that. Paul has contrasted his wisdom uh, and God's wisdom versus man's wisdom throughout this whole letter thus far. And now Paul's kind of tongue in cheek saying, is there no one really wise enough among you to judge the settled dispute between the brothers? Verse six, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. So Paul is saying, you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed that you've let it go this far. Again, notice the language, brother against brother. And again, in that context, I mean, we, we can include brothers and sisters here, but in this specific context, in a, in a patriarchal society, it was the men who would have owned property and different things. And most likely, again, what was happening is there was a wealthy person who was suing someone of lesser means. And therefore, we all kind of knew what was going to happen is the wealthy person who can really manipulate the powerful judges and things like that who are part of their own social strata, that there's no chance really that the lesser one, who is a brother in God's community, right? Outside the community, there's wealthy and, 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 and unwealthy, but inside God's community, we're all rich in Christ, in God's kingdom. Paul's saying that you're using the outside to bring harm upon the inside, the, the, the internal community. And so Paul is saying, this is shameful. You're doing this to your own brothers, your own sisters. You're hurting people within your own family. Verse seven, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. The goal's not winning. To have lawsuits at all is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Paul's saying this is something that we should not do. And to have lawsuits among Christian believers, and especially in the same community, is already a defeat for us. Paul says that, that, that is a defeat for us. And again, look, tapping back on what Pastor Brian taught last week and knowing what happens in the New Testament with Jesus saying, how do we, you know, come up against a brother who has sinned against us? There's a, there's a process. 
And if we let it go to the point to where we take it outside the church and into lawsuits, um, again, specifically in the community of believers, there's something wrong. It is to your shame. That's something that we don't do, Paul is saying. I was thinking about this, um, you know, kind of saying, well, this is just something we don't do, right? And uh, recently, Taylor and I, we've been watching a show called Blue Bloods, um, and it's a show about a family of police officers, and uh, one of the main characters, his name is Frank Reagan, uh, played by Tom Selleck, okay, so for some of you, those are tapping back, right, on the good old days, apparently. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> had to say that. That um, was for Veronica Cooper. Um, <laughs> Frank Reagan is the police chief commissioner. So he's all over all 35,000 uh, cops in New York City, right? And remember, this is a family. It's about a family of police officers and a couple lawyers, too. And Frank is the, the head honcho, really, right? He, he basically just listens to, to the mayor, and he's the one making the big-time decisions and different things like that. Um, and in this particular episode that I'm thinking of, Frank is going to see a psychiatrist, and he's struggling with sleeplessness. He can't sleep, and he's trying to get help um, and really, his whole anxiety ties around um, the, the uh, trauma from 9-11 and really asking, why didn't I die and why did others? Why me? Right? So he goes to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist says, well, have you tried any sleep medication? And then Frank says, we don't do that. Who doesn't do that, says the psychiatrist. Reagan's. Reagan's don't take drugs, says Frank. And the psychiatrist says, oh, well, is there anything else Reagan's don't do? And he says, this. <laughs> Frank was admitting that for him to even come here was something that was categorically different than what his family had done. Our friends, when we take lawsuits, when we, when we have lawsuits among Christian brothers and sisters, when we let that happen to our community, when we fracture our community with that, we're, we're, we're reminded that Paul says, that's something that we don't do. We should not let it go that far. Before I move on, let me do a little sidebar here because some of you are wondering, well, what about Nick, Nick, Nick? What about other like lawsuits? Is that, is that sinful if, if something like that would happen? Can I sue somebody who's outside the church and all those things? I'm not going to try and get into particulars, but here's basically what I want to say. Um, I don't think that it's, it's necessarily sinful to have a lawsuit. For instance, if I, if I wanted to sue somebody because they've, they've hurt me in some way, done something to me that's hurt me, um, I would say, though, that if it's gotten that far, it must be really, really bad because, again, Christians, we do things differently. We, we, we go and engage the people who have wronged us. We try and talk with them. We try to be at peace with everyone so long as it depends on us. We try and go and make a way, a path to avoid that, right? So, again, talking Christian to an unbeliever, what happens if you're sued by... And so, it, again, like, if that happens, it happens. I don't necessarily think that it's sinful, but I would say, though, that there should be a process and pray that that doesn't get that far. Because as believers, we want to be at peace, and we hope and pray that we would rather suffer wrong. We would rather be defrauded than go, let it go that far. What happens if someone from, who's a non-Christian sues you? Um, that happens in life. And sometimes things are out of our control. And we have to remember that if that's where it's gone and someone has done that, that we're going to walk through that situation. But we're going to, so far as it depends on us, do our best in all circumstances to represent Christ and pray 
that a good and peaceful and loving resolution would be found. And so we remember that ultimately, again, when it comes to lawsuits, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to different things like this, that we inhabit a different story. We inhabit a kingdom. We're, we're, this, this body is a family of remade kingdom people. And we do things differently. We do things differently. Now, that's not to say life's not messy and different things like that. But we pray and remember that we are a family. We take care of one another. And we mean, that means we settle our disputes in-house. We don't want our dirty laundry necessarily going out before unbelievers. That's another concern of Paul's here. We do things in-house, and we love each other, and we're at peace with one another. But we know that as as life is complicated and messy, that outside of that, we seek to be kingdom representatives, remade people in all that we do. And that's what Paul addresses next in verses 9 through 11. Look with me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul is saying, some of you are wronging and defrauding your brothers. Well, do you not know that the unrighteous, by you doing that, you act like the unrighteous people outside the community? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, this is a passage where Paul really added some things that we talked about last week in verses five, uh, chapter five, verses eleven through or verse eleven. Right? Paul adds a few things. Right? And again, we're still seeing that sexual immorality is still a part of this. Um, but Paul wants to say that these things are what categorize people, like. Are, are, are you a reviler, right? So if I, if I was a thief, right, then I would be seen as a thief. There were, or if I was a drunkard, that means I have a reputation of being a drunkard. Or if I'm a reviler, that means I, I have a re- reputation of um, reviling others, despising others, and doing things to them, or swindling them, taking money that should be going to others, but I'm kind of taking it for myself and different things like this. And those are some of the things that have characterized people outside of the, the community who they are, because Paul says, in verse 11, but such were some of you. But such were some of you. And but, I always say but is the greatest word in the Bible. I say that to my students, and it sometimes gets a smile or snicker. But, um, but you were washed. And really, we take it out of our translation here in the ESV. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified. Paul says, Paul, Paul keeps saying but, right? But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul says that used, to, that used to identify you. That was in your past. You're now new kingdom people. You've been remade. You've been made new. You've been given a new identity, rags to riches, baby, but in a different kind of way. Um, Again, I kind of try and thinking how I could possibly explain this, and I just I love kind of using um, some of my old things. Right, I talked about Arnold Classic. Here, uh, there's an old TV show I used to watch called Pimp My Ride. I don't know if any of you used to watch it, uh, but it was called Pimp My Ride MTV. And what here's what they did: they would take up an old beater car and bring it into the shop, and then make it into this incredible, almost kind of crazy car that the new that the owner would get to go and drive around. Right. Um, I actually have a photo of it, I think, 
Uh, so here's an example of an old uh, car getting uh, pimped out, right? Being uh, just made new. And in fact, many crazy things like, uh, apparently it wasn't usually good for the owners, but they would put these incredible like subwoofers in there. Some, one even had a hot tub in it. Uh, they had these giant TVs. There was one on mud flaps, like a TV's on mud flaps. Like that clearly that's gonna get stolen in a hot minute. Like, come on. And so this is kind of the image that I have in mind when it comes to us being remade people in God's kingdom. God has taken what was beaten up, destroyed, scuffed, battered, really deformed, and made us back into what humanity is to be. Really, Jesus as the new man, the new Adam. And so we are made into kingdom people because we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified. Not only have we been restored, but we are now on a trajectory, right? We are so good. It's, it's kind of flabbergasting like some of these cars. You are on this trajectory, right? You're in Christ. You've been remade. And you have a purpose, much like, again, you restore a piece of furniture that has been beaten, scuffed, just ragtagged, all kind of stuff. You restore it, and then it has this purpose. We have a purpose, we are a kingdom people that has a trajectory going forward into eternity. And so we remember that identity. Those old things no longer define us. And instead, now we have remembered that we are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified. So what makes Christian community different? Each church body is a family of remade kingdom people. That was my first movement. And I can answer it now again with my second movement, and that is this. Our individual bodies belong to the kingdom of God. What makes Christian community different? Our individual bodies belong to the kingdom of God. We're going to look at verse 12. So Paul now begins to uh, argue, really, kind of with the Corinthians again. So here's what he says in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. You see the quotations around there, but not all things are helpful. No quotations. All things are lawful for me. No quotations, but I will, or sorry, with quotations, but I will not be dominated by anything. Um, I'm going to show you a little slide here as I keep reading uh, in a minute, but food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And here's where I think the ESV gets it wrong. I think that quotation should be brought down to God will destroy both one and the other because um, Paul's going to make the case, actually, that in Jesus' resurrection, that our bodies matter. And so in Jesus' resurrection, we, re, we, we are united to him in his resurrection, and therefore we too will be resurrected one day. Um, it's really a classic what is called diatribe by Paul. Uh, and I have a slide to demonstrate kind of uh, how it looks here. Uh, so in case you can't read that, I'm going to walk through it here with you in these verses to kind of sum up. So Paul is again arguing with the Corinthians and some of their favorite slogans, right? Some of the things that they say, right? We've just come off the passage of talking about um, people who have been uh, sexual, uh, imm sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality and different things like that. And so we're coming back to sexuality again here. Paul says, or the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. They think that all things are lawful. But here's what Paul says, but not all things are beneficial, all things are lawful for me, the Corinthians retort again, but I will not be dominated by anything, Paul says. Again, this is just some slogans that the Corinthians have, and what we're going to find out here is why someone is saying that is because someone 
has been going to still be with the temple prostitutes. Again, common in the Corinthian uh, day and age, right, where you would, that would be just part of your thing with uh, especially males who could basically do sexually with, what, with anyone, whatever they wanted. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 you can't do that anymore. But they're, they're saying, no, we have a reason for it. Come on, Paul. All things are lawful for me, right? But Paul says, no, 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 not all things are beneficial. And I will not be dominated by anything. And then they say, food is meant for the stomach. And Paul retorts, well, the body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord. And the stomach for food. And the Lord for the body or sorry, and the Lord for the body, and God will destroy, but Paul says, and God raised, and both one and the other, and the Lord will also raise us by his power. Again, a way to kind of help us is to substitute some words here. The argument that the Corinthians are making is that food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food basically substitutes sex and body in there. Sex is meant for the body, and the body meant for sex, and Paul is saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Instead, the body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And so basically, Paul is affirming that our bodies have a future. Now, again, they're remade, much like Christ's resurrection body, right? When he came up from the grave, he, you could still tell it was him, but also he did some crazy things, like probably walk through walls or disappear and all these other things, he could, but he would still eat, and you could recognize him in different things like that. Well, Paul, or Paul is affirming that our bodies matter here in this passage. And why do they matter? It's because one day we will be resurrected in bodies that are remade. Again, look with me at um, verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know, he continues the argument, that, you're members, that you are members of Christ? And again, the image is that we are appendages of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him? So again, to kind of help us out, I have a little uh, slide here to kind of really follow the argument. It's by a guy named Gordon Fee uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Here's what the basic argument that Paul is making. In fornicating with a prostitute, a man removes his body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see there, purchased by God and destined for resurrection. From So he, he removes his body from union with Christ and instead makes it a member of her body, thereby putting it under her mastery. Again, Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. I will be not, not dominant or mastered by anybody, <clears throat> by anything. Every other sin is a part of, from, i.e., not in the body in the singular sense. Now, that part we didn't read yet. Look with me. It says in verse um, 18, flee from sexual, sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When we sin sexually, we, we hurt ourselves. And really, if we are united to Christ, we hurt him because we are somehow mystically united in these bodies with Jesus. Why? Because do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is making the argument here again that our bodies matter. 
what we do with them matter. And then when we commit sexually immoral things, right? Again, the, 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 it's the having sex with a prostitute, not having sex with your spouse. Um, that, that's the issue here is you make a member of somebody who is not a member of that resurrected kind of future already but not yet community that you are. And you're adding a member to Christ, much like if you were um, building a machine and you had it on a, on a, um, uh, a track or whatever, uh, you don't add a piece that's not supposed to be there because then it just screws up the whole thing, right? It, it doesn't work, right? And so Paul is making uh, the argument that you can't, that that doesn't work because when people come together, they become one flesh. When you know somebody intimately and sexually, you become one flesh. Paul taps back on Genesis. And so, Again, we are reminded that the things we do with our bodies matter. These, these bodies matter. I feel as though, unfortunately, in, in Christian circles, we've downplayed the importance of our bodies. We just stuck ourselves on the cross, necessarily, that Jesus just died for my sins. If our gospel presentations, when we're talking about uh, the gospel and saying what really saves you, 1 Corinthians 15, which we're going to get to in a number of uh, months, is... Paul's argument is that if Jesus hadn't been raised, you're still dead in your sin. And Jesus being raised not only um, reminded us that he defeats death, but he defeats death for our bodies too. And that heaven, that already, uh, that, that future um, reality that we look forward to when we dwell with God is not some disembodied soul place, as many of the Corinthians thought. They emphasize the spirit and the soul. It's actually these bodies remade, dwelling with God eternally. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The price of Christ going to the cross was the most hefty price that there's ever been. And these bodies are part of that deal. I almost hesitate to use this, but one of the things that I think we don't struggle with is going to the temple prostitutes. Um, but one of the things I think that the church struggles with in this day and age is pornography. Pornography tears apart is that evil underbelly underneath the church in so many ways that is unspoken of in our circles. It's not talked about. And that's a shame. That's a travesty. Because it is eating marriages, it is eating men and women alive. And again, even though it's, 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 it's not, even if it's with a screen, like you are hurting your body and you're therefore hurting Christ when we partake in pornography. I have some statistics for us to show the sheer weight of it. According to a survey by the Barna Group in 2016, 41% of Christian, practicing Christian boys 13 to 24 use porn at least once a month. And again, that was 2016. Here we are five years later. 23% of practicing Christian men, 25 plus use porn at least once a month. And again, I think oftentimes in these categories, uh, it's underreporting. Another survey says um, in 2014, all right, so two years before that, 64% of self-identified Christian men and 15% of self-identified Christian women view pornography at least once a month, compared to 65% of non-Christian men and 30% of non-Christian women. 
men. 64 and 65. How is that different? The things we do with our bodies matter. And we need to be able to address some of those underlying problems and concerns in the church. Because Paul makes the case here that our bodies don't just belong to us in our individualistic, all about me, myself, and I, the things that I do with me and what I do in private, they don't hurt anybody. That is a lie from the pits of hell. What we do with our bodies matter. What, how we interact with one another in our Christian communities, it matters. And we need to remember that the next time we are tempted to fall into sexual immorality. So what makes Christian community different? Each church body is a family of remade kingdom people and our individual bodies belong to the kingdom of God. We are kingdom people. So my big idea for us this really this day is Christian community is different because our bodies, both church and individual, belong to the kingdom of God. Our bodies belong to the kingdom of God. This church belongs to the kingdom of God. We, as individuals, belong to the kingdom of God. So here's my application for us as I wrap up. Act as if you belong to God's kingdom. Act as if you belong to God's kingdom. Again, a very brief overview of the biblical story is what helps us um, act and imagine, right? In the beginning, God created us as his image bearers and created us as, as good to rule over the earth. And again, really, that's a, an idea of cultivation. We were to work and keep the garden to be fruitful and multiply and expand the Garden of Eden, right? Eden and then the garden in it to the whole ends of the earth. Remember, the garden is where God dwelled. And so the idea is that the whole earth becomes a place where God dwells. But that got separated and torn asunder when we sinned. And the history of Israel reminds us that, <laughs> that there's a big problem. But there's promises along the way, the little bits of light that pop up along the timeline that God's gonna make things right, that he's gonna fix things. And so... We see that that comes now uh, through the history of Israel, broken and beaten and exiled to Jesus in the New Testament. And really, that's God taking on flesh and dwelling among us, Jesus uh, is. And really, what he's doing is setting back us on the right trajectory. And so he is the king of that already but not yet kingdom. He comes in saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the king. He's saying, repent, here it is that time when all things will be made right, I'm the one bringing it in. I'm ushering it in. And then after his death and resurrection, he ascended and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so here we are in this age. We have a trajectory that we're being pulled to. You're not just living this life. You have a purpose. You have a trajectory to dwell with God one day. And our salvation really is the means to that end, to dwelling with God. And we are members of, of a family here with this Christian community. We help each other as the little lights in the darkness popping up to help make the way. We are kingdom people who have been remade and we are in this family. I'll close with this very quick story. 
I uh, subscribe to a magazine called Comment Magazine, and it's titled uh, Public Theology for the Common Good, and this particular uh, issue was The Stories We Tell. And this guy named Joseph Grenny uh, wrote about, he's a board member for this um, organization called The Other Side Academy. I have a picture of kind of what their building uh, looks like in Utah. They take in uh, criminals um, who have usually been arrested on average 25 times. Um, and most people in uh, their areas consider them just dead weight to society. And the other side of the academy says, we'll take them. 25 times they've run in, had run-ins with the law. And many of them are broken and beaten in, in horrific ways. Well, they're brought in, and they're told that um, you're not allowed to talk about your past for at least the first eight months of the process. It's a two and a half year thing that this is all completely voluntary. They don't pay. Other people don't pay to have them put it in. This is all their choice. And here's the dogma that they knew, those people who are broken and beaten. What you've done is who you are. Who you are is who you'll be. Therefore, what you've done is who you'll be. And here's what the Other Side Academy says. They hear this liberating message at the Other Side Academy. Your present, it, it says that um, the other side of Academy presents it as it is your present, not your past, that defines your potential. And then they come and they look at this logic instead. While what you've done is who you think you are, what you do now shows who you can become. And how do they do that? They exercise 200% accountability, which I think is so inherently biblical and they're not a Christian organization, but they exercise 200% accountability. You do your work 100% of the way, and then you make sure your other uh, partners do their work 100% of the way. Act, and they, they act as if, even if they don't feel it, they act as if they have that accountability. They act as if they will, someone who they will become, even when they don't feel it. Friends, let's act as if we are God's kingdom people now. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, again for this time. And I just uh, pray that you would allow us to remember that um, right now we can act as if we are your kingdom people, that we are <laughs> indeed members of that future kingdom in this already but not yet reality. Help us um, to remember that, Father, as we go um, about our weeks and days. May we remember that your son Jesus is Lord, and it is Him, uh, to him that we are accountable, and to one another as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.